Hey everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. As always, the podcast is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market today. For a full feature-by-feature, product-by-product comparison of all application layering products, check out whatmatrix.com for more. And now for some news. Google Cloud Platform experienced a significant outage over the weekend. Multiple regions experienced complete services down for popular Google products like Gmail, G Suite, and YouTube. The outage lasted several hours on June 2nd, with service eventually being restored around 7 p.m. Eastern. Engadget reports that no cause has been provided as of yet, but Google have promised to conduct, quote, a post-mortem and will make appropriate improvements to prevent a repeat. In more positive news for Google, it seems they are set to acquire a startup that specializes in analytics. The startup is called Looker. TechCrunch.com reports that the acquisition is valued at $2.6 billion. The two companies already have a strong existing partnership and have 350 common customers to date. At $2.6 billion, this is by far the largest acquisition that Google has made in its analytics and cloud to date. At the Worldwide Developer Conference that was held this past weekend, there were several big announcements from Apple, including iPad OS which appears to be a branch off from iOS specific for the iPad to allow development toward the iPad's unique capabilities. ZDNet suggested that this could be an early indicator that iPadOS could be a future for the macOS. It would make sense that they would take this approach in future for macOS as it would enable touchscreen on Macs. And as their article points out, it would also enable them to run on ARM in future. Also showcased during the event was the ability to extend your Mac with an iPad thanks to a feature called Sidecar in Catalina, which is the latest macOS that was unveiled at the event. You can extend your macOS screen onto the iPad, much like you would with multiple monitors. A new Mac Pro was also unveiled, priced at $5,999, and that's just starting. It goes up from there. The Pro Display XDR that will launch with it as a suitable stand for the device comes in at $4,999. So if you're getting the machine and the stand, which likely if you're buying it, you're going to get the stand too, you're looking at about $11,000 investment. The MacBook Pro has a stainless steel frame that's designed for tweaking and modules that can move around the frame. Every subsystem within the device has been optimized. Aesthetically, it doesn't look very good. As my buddy Joe Shank pointed out, it does look a lot like a cheese grater. ZDNet suggests that the Mac Pro will be a draw for creative pros with an Intel Xeon processor with up to 28 cores and 300 watts of power. So definitely not doubting that it's a very powerful machine. Some of the other specs include 1.5 terabytes of system memory, eight internal PCI slots, two Thunderbolt 3 ports, two USB-A ports, two built-in 10 GPE ports, 
an afterburner expansion card for video editing that can play, a module called MPX module that will replace graphics cards for NVIDIA or AMD, Mac Pro will support Radeon Pro 580X Vega 2 with the ability to put two Vega 2 cards together. As you may have caught as well, I did mention that macOS Catalina was also featured at the conference. Some cool new features for that includes security benefits like Find My is a feature that can locate Apple devices even when they're offline. The feature is a nice bridge to iOS and can be handy. This component features a secure Bluetooth beacon that's encrypted and anonymous and just enabled for the Find My app. There's also an activation lock that will prevent a lost or stolen MacBook from starting up. Also announced at the event was Project Catalyst, a tool that allows iPad developers to easily create Mac apps. Developers will get tools that allow them to check off features that will automatically appear in the Mac app. I tend to try to stay away from consumer tech on the podcast and prefer to feature just enterprise IT relevant content. There were other features announced at the conference for watchOS, tvOS, iOS, and other products that I won't cover on this episode. I'll share a link instead to some of the highlights with this episode, which is episode 75 on 5bytespodcast.com, and you'll find that under reference links. Also in some other Apple news, last week reports emerged that suggest Apple iTunes will soon be no more with the features getting split across multiple apps, at least on Macs, including Apple Music, Apple TV, and Apple Podcast apps. It appears it will remain for Windows, at least for now. Syncing to iPhones, iPads, and iPods in future will happen directly in the Finder app for Mac users. Unfortunately, that lump of junk is hanging around for Windows, and undoubtedly this will mean you will still need to support it in your environment if you do that today. I actually just had a discussion on Twitter with a couple of guys about managing the Bonjour service, which is part of iTunes. So it looks like that pain's not going away anytime soon. Also reported this week is the fact that MacBooks or Macs older than 2012 will not run macOS Catalina. I'm sure some will gripe about this, and I'm not Apple's biggest fan per se, but I think this is fair. Seven years is a long time. If you've had a Mac for seven years, it's probably time that you start thinking about upgrading. In fact, if you've owned any type of machine, be it a PC or a Mac, for that long, you probably should think about upgrading. As pointed out by Daniel Bolton on Twitter, a couple of significant storage changes will roll out with Catalina 2. There will now be a dedicated system volume. This means that macOS Catalina runs in its own read-only volume, so it's separate from all other data on your Mac, and nothing can accidentally overwrite your system files. And Gatekeeper ensures that new apps that you install have been checked for known security issues before you run them. So you're always using good software. Restrictions around applications accessing files and documents your desktop folder and on external volumes in iCloud Drive will also feature. It will be prompting you if an app tries to write to these locations. So overall, it's making the OS more secure. I mean, some of those abilities, some of those features are already 
experienced by Windows users today, like UAC and Windows Resource Protection, albeit not necessarily on a completely separate partition. There has been chatter recently that Bluekeep, the RDP worm exploit that I reported on over the last couple of weeks, is now being exploited in the wild. Malware Tech, who had said that he was not going to touch it, has now actually posted a blog saying that his reasoning at the time for not blogging about it or talking about it or doing any demos around it was for the timing, that he didn't want something he put out to be used maliciously. He is posting now, as many others have posted proof-of-concept examples of how to exploit it on GitHub. His article is very cool. He gets into the nitty-gritty at a code level for the exploit. I'm certainly no security expert, and I'm not used to working at that type of level, but I found it very insightful nonetheless, so you might too. I'll share that link with this episode, again, which is episode 75, on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. Also related to this, Adam the Analyst on Twitter gave a very helpful tip. You can actually detect attempts of running the BlueKeep sample code from GitHub via Event Viewer ID 4625. So if you see an event with ID 4625 being executed by account name AAA, AAAA, seven A's, then that could indicate that someone is trying to remotely execute that sample code from GitHub. In more unfortunate news, one of the actions recommended when BlueKeep was exposed was to enforce network-level authentication. TheHackerNews.com now reports that there is an unpatched Windows bug in Windows 10 1803 and Server 2019. And those who are enforcing network-level authentication are vulnerable. The issue exposed is that if there is a network disruption and that NLA is enforced, a session lock can be bypassed, allowing a hacker to access the login option. This is the case even if using an MFA solution. Microsoft have been notified of the vulnerability, but they have responded by saying that, quote, the behavior does not meet the Microsoft security servicing criteria for Windows, which means the tech giant has no plans to patch the issue anytime soon. Users can protect themselves, however, against potential exploitation of this by locking the local system instead of the remote system and by disconnecting the remote desktop sessions instead of just locking them. Of course, if you work in an environment like mine, if you change that type of behavior, first sessions, you're going to hear about it. So ideally, Microsoft should just address the issue, in my opinion. Canva announced that they have been breached. I mention it as it's quite popular for those who do a lot of PowerPoint presentations and web development work. It seems that they caught the person in the act and managed to avoid the worst happening. They state that they've notified the authorities, so hopefully the damage has been limited. The Citrix connection quality indicator has been updated with some optimizations, including reduced memory usage and UI improvements. The Citrix VDisk replicator utility that I have covered a couple of times on the podcast has now been officially released. If you currently need to replicate VDisks across servers, you'll want to check this out for yourself. 
it could replace your custom robocopy scripts or if you're using something like dfsr or something to replicate the vdisks today good job by rob and those at citrix for investing the time in building this utility version 6.1.1 of bisf has been released with support for server 2019 citrix optimizer multiple templates and some other functions too if you are going to e2evc in berlin you will have a chance to meet Matthias and thank him for his excellent free tool. And I suggest that you do. Typically, I would attend the EUC Insiders event, but this year I missed it. Thanks to vmblog.com, I got to follow some of the Liquidware features announced that included FlexApp cloaking, which by its description seems a lot like FSLogic's app masking, allowing you to cloak or hide applications from users that you do not want to publish the application too. Very handy on shared machines. They announced a pre-cache flex app blocks feature, which records required blocks for app start and speeds app launch experience. There's also flex app merge layers. Two pre-existing layers can be merged into one, which I really like. That's a utility that ThinApp used to have. You used to be able to take your users runtime sandbox and merge it with the parent application package. So something like this could be pretty cool like that. There's trigger support, which allows you to layer flex apps by in-session criteria that may have changed, and it works with filters as well. There's new features and modules specific to Amazon AppStream, and some flex app packaging console updates, like OS-specific optimizations being done automatically plus more. I advise you to check out vmblog.com for a full breakdown and also some extra context to some of these announcements. And now this episode's weekly webinar. This week, I suggest you check out DJ Eshelman's webinar titled The Dirty Dozen, 12 Most Made Citrix Mistakes. The webinar covers 12 things that are the most regularly made recommendations by DJ to his customers. If you're a Citrix novice and you'd like to learn some of the best practices or just you know, industry recommendations from DJ, you want to check this out for yourself. Or hey, if you're an expert and you just want to see if there's anything that DJ has learned that he could pass on to you that maybe you haven't seen throughout your various customers' projects, you should check this out too. And it's already freely available today. Now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you may recall one of my scripts, tricks, and tips from last year was a fully functioning Windows 95 container created with something called Electron. This week, I'm featuring an article about building cross-platform desktop apps using something called Blazor and Electron.net. With more and more exposure to visual code and also .NET Core and PowerShell Core becoming available, the topic of making portable apps that work on any operating system is becoming much more prominent. This article serves as a great jumping off point. It will bring you through setting up your development tools and will even get you working with your first sample code and app. So if you're working in IT and you're developer focused, maybe you work in a DevOps role, or maybe you just would like to, I suggest you check this one out. And that's it for another episode. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>